0: Greetings, listeners, if any, and welcome to DM Dad, the podcast about running D&D and other RPGs for kids. A great way to spend time with your family now that your friends are too old and have all moved away. So greetings, listeners, um, I've got a I've got a few voice messages um, To take care of this week. But I'm not going to do that today. Um, Although really quickly um, to RFED, a.k.a. Darren Green, um, a.k.a. Rocks Fall, Everyone Dies. Thank you very much for the birthday wish. Um, Really appreciate it. But I'm doing something special this week. Um, On Wednesday, as I'm recording this, it's Monday. And on Wednesday... I am running a game of Swords and Wizardry white box for people more or less my own age. Um, there's a uh, forum here in Edinburgh for uh, RPG players. It's called the Open Role Play Community, ORC. Orc. And uh, a long time ago, somebody had been running first edition AD&D and had basically run through all the series of modules from like against the giants all the way onward. Um, kind of just doing the whole run of the classic series of modules. And as far as I know, that's finished and it's over, you know? So I noticed there's, there's a lot of people playing fifth edition. There's still people playing pathfinder. There's, People talking about the Pathfinder playtest. There's people running other systems like Thulu and stuff like that. And I I looked and looked and looked and nobody was running any old school D&D anymore. Since that that first edition AD&D game finished. And that was like a year or so ago. So I posted in there, you know, looking for a game or looking to run a game post. I posted, want to play OD original Dungeons & Dragons? and i you know laid out my proposal that i would run uh original dungeons and dragons via swords and wizardry white box for especially for people who had only ever played third edition or later that's what i was basically saying you know i'm especially like i'll, I'll open it to anybody but i'm especially looking for people who have only ever played wizards of the coast era or pathfinder I've never played any old school D&D, and I will run original D&D. I mentioned a few of the, I don't know, nuances, you know. All weapons do a D6 of damage. All hit dice are D6s for all classes and also for monsters. No spells beyond 6th level or 5th level for clerics. Clerics don't get a spell at 1st level. All the things that would probably shock you if you'd never played an old school edition i also said you know we're going to roll stats hardcore 3d6 in order and the order is and the order i gave was white box order strength intelligence wisdom con dex charisma um i also pointed out that this is not the kind of game where every time you level up assuming you survive long enough to level up that uh you, uh, you get magical new powers. You know, like ah, oh, this I get access to this magical ability. You know, if you're a spellcaster, you get more spells. Everybody gets more hit points, and eventually, if you live long enough, you will uh, get to establish a stronghold and att- attract followers. And that's basically it. You know, what you get when you progress through the game is the satisfaction of still being alive and you probably get some magic items as well anyways I, d- I posted that like back in May and hardly anybody responded in fact initially nobody responded and then I got one respondent and then for a long time he was like hey when can we start this game and I said well I'm gonna wait till there's more than one player mate so um, just watch the space yeah and then nothing happened and I thought well you know I guess nobody wants to play it the bright side is I don't have to do anything. You know, I don't have to prep a game or select an adventure or write an adventure. And then, um, like, last month, it started to blow up. Like, one extra person said, hey, you know, I'd be interested if this ever happens. And I was still like, well, two. I we could run a game for two people. But it's, you know, I have an excuse to back out of it if it's still only two people. But I guess what happens on this forum is there's a sidebar on the forum that shows you um, whichever threads have had the most recent post. So they kind of advertise the the thread being active keeps pushing it up. And the the most recent post is at the top of that sidebar and the second most recent post, you know, so, so, so basically every time somebody responded to this, this thread, it pushed that thread way up to the top of the pile and anybody Logging onto the forum, would glance at the sidebar and say and see this headline. Want to play original Dungeons and Dragons? And so, you know, within within a couple of weeks, I suddenly had seven people who want to play this game. So now it's happening. Now I have to do this. I I can't back out now. And it's happening this Wednesday. So less than two days. Um. So. Uh, the I don't know if they're gonna like it. I don't know if they're gonna like me. I don't know if I'm gonna like them. Which is something I hadn't thought about until I was talking with the the group that I play with as a player. I was telling them about how I'm running this game, and I'm I'm only running a one shot in case they don't like the game or they don't like my DMing style or they don't like me or something. And and one of one of the other players is like, you also need to make sure that you like them. And like that is definitely. The personality conflicts potentially go both ways, you know, so I, I need to kind of be like, do I, do I want to keep running for this group if it, if this becomes a regular thing, but I'm running a one shot or I'm going to attempt to run a one shot. I've never run a one shot in my life before. Um, The one shot that I have selected is Tower of Skulls, which is uh, Josh Beckelheimer's first ever one-page adventure, at least the first one that he kind of posted and published. You can hear about it if you go to his podcast. It's actually, he discusses it on the first episode of his podcast. And having listened to that episode, I went and downloaded it right away, like as as, as soon as the podcast was over. I went and downloaded it. Um, so I have high hopes that I can finish this in two hours, because that's how long we have to play. Two and a half. They'll chuck us... I, I've, I've booked it to start for seven, and the uh, we're playing at my friendly local game store, and they will chuck us out of there at half nine. Because they want to go home, you know. It's not an all-night place. Um, so... Fingers crossed, I we can we can complete this dungeon crawl. It's just a little dungeon crawl, a tower in the middle of a river. The tower is sunk, so you start at the top and go down. Um and hopefully yeah, we can do that in uh in two and a two and a half hours tops. Um but you know, that'll depend on, on how long they spend on each each area, you know. I am going to give them a, a race against the clock element which is that it's not actually in a river it's in an estuary it is therefore tidal and very wide it's too wide to swim from the tower to shore if the, if if bad things happen and because it's tidal I'm going to be basically rolling dice I'm going to use like the usage dice mechanic that you get in like the Black Hack and some other games Every turn, I'm going to roll that die, and every time that die downgrades, the tide is creeping in. And whether they leave the 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 trap door and the roof open or not, it will be bad if the tide comes in while they're down there. They're either going to have to wait for 12 hours for the tide to clear, and, they, and then the door will be underwater and extremely difficult to push open. And once they do push open, a flood of water will come and possibly knock them down the stairs. Or if they leave the door open, then water will flood down the stairs and cause flooding in in the tower, possibly leading to them drowning, or at least being trapped. So so that's how I'm gonna do a kind of race against the clock element and hopefully that will g them up and make sure they don't you know, dick around in uh some of the puzzle rooms for way longer than they need to. The reason though that I'm talking about it now, because what does this have to do with kids? Well, I've been really nervous about whether this, whether I can run this adventure effectively, whether I can run it to time, whether it will—I don't know—whether I'll do a good job. I want to do—I want to do the adventure justice. I want to do the rule set justice. I mean, it's not—it's it's not a big deal if this edition or this version of the game turns out not to be their thing. This is all just kind of an experiment. But OD&D, especially white box OD&D, is, is basically my favorite edition of Dungeons and & Dragons. And Swords and & Wizardry White Box is my favorite version of that rule set. And I, I want to present it in the best possible light. You know, If they don't like it because they don't like it, that's one thing. But I don't want them to not like it because I did a bad job running it. So I feel a lot of pressure. I would feel that pressure anyway, though, because I feel a lot of anxiety whenever I'm going to interact socially with people I've never met before. Anyways, one of the things I did to try to kind of ease my nerves as I play tested this um, with my kids, or at least with one of my kids. Um, my son is still finding it a little hard to concentrate for long periods of time after school. Um you know, just starting school—it's a long day for him. So he—he he wasn't really participating, and my my eight-year-old ended up running all four characters. But we basically took the characters that they've been running anyway, and I said, "We're just play testing this adventure. So if you die, it doesn't count. We'll just call it a dream sequence or something." But she ran through it, and the good news is that it. It came out, there's a good chance that I'll I'll be able to keep to time. We'll we'll be able to do the whole thing within two and a half hours. I mean one one X factor is she didn't need to roll up characters. Um So we're gonna have to we're gonna have to make character creation take as little as possible. And character creation in white box is easy anyway. To speed it up, I'm gonna have them buy weapons and then we're gonna do the untold adventure style equipment slots. Like don't buy mundane equipment. I don't want, I don't want them spending two hours thinking about whether they need a, a box of caltrops and stuff like that. And just like you all just, after you buy your weapons, take 25 gold off, whatever you had, and that will buy you five equipment slots. And if you don't have 25 left, then whatever you do, we'll call it five gold per slot. And then if while you're doing the the actual adventure you need a certain piece of mundane equipment, presto, you have it. Not cross off one of your slots and now you have whatever you said you, you know, whether it's a torch or a 10-foot pole or some rope or a flask of oil or ball bearings or anything you can think of, as long as it's not a weapon or a magic item or something that it hasn't been amended yet. For instance, I hate these systems that basically use matches and they call them Tinder twigs. It's like, look, there's no reason for that, all right? It's not like you need an ability check to use a Tinder box. So why do you need a fantasy rewrite of matches, you know? I guess technically it takes a minute to, like a a full minute of game time. But if you're not in combat and you need to light a torch. I'm not going to roll a wandering monster check on you for 1 minute of game time to light your tinder, to light to start a fire with your tinder box and light a torch. That's just not worth anybody's time. I also don't like the solar, I think they're they're basically like flare, they're called sun rods or something. They're basically like flares. I feel like, you know, I hate that crap. You might as well have like a calculator, you know. Like I have a fantasy reskin of a calculator. It's called the number box, you know, anyways. So yeah, unless it's magical, a weapon or hasn't been invented yet, you can have it. And that should hopefully be, you know, roll your, yeah, roll your 3d6 seven times for your stats and your gold, buy your weapons and your armor, take another 25 off and then let's go. So anyways, yeah, one thing I noticed about this adventure, it really freaked my daughter out in a way I didn't expect. So she did, she, once again, she showed really great gamer skills. So I, I set her up, I said, okay, you're in this town, and I told her the name of the town, and I said, headless bodies are washing up on the shore. And she said, that's weird. And um, she said she wanted to go do some research about, you know, as she asked questions, we eventually got to the fact that you can see the top of a tower in the middle of the estuary. You can see it from the shore. It's about halfway between the shore that the town is on and the the other side of it. And she asked about the tower, and she said she wanted to do some research, and there's no library in town, but she went to the the tavern where all the fishermen go, and talked to a lot of fishermen, and got various stories about the tower and stuff like that. But that was her first port of call, she's like, I want to do some research here, I want to like find out more. And once again, eight years old, excellent gamer skill, you know. She's a she could do like the, you know, I don't think they do this anymore, but they used to do like the competitions at cons where, you know, um you would get points and stuff for running through a module effect. I think uh Tomb of Horrors used to be done as a competition. She would be really good at that. So she got as much information as as it was possible to get. And then um she paid one of the fishermen or actually two, because they wouldn't all fit in the same boat. So they split the party into two boats. She had a pay two fishermen that would were brave enough to row out to the top of the tower. And then there were um there were crenellations and there were also these things um jutting out kind of perpendicular. Maybe they used to hold banners or flags or maybe they used to be pedestals for gargoyles or, you know, right now they're just basically little spears of stone. But they're things that they could tie the boat up to and then climb up. Now, um, the eyes of frogs were kind of peeping up in the water as they neared the tower. And she's like, how big are they? And it's like, well, I guess... What, from what you can see, like the tops of their heads and their eyes, proportionally, you would guess they were maybe about about the size of a dog. She's like, so they couldn't swallow us whole. It's like, no, no, they're not. They don't appear to be that big. She's like, okay, that's good. So she gets onto the roof of the tower. Now, because it's tidal, at high tide, water laps over the battlements. Um, so there's some there's some ankle-deep standing water there. And there is a trapdoor, it's clearly visible, but of course it's underwater, so it's going to be hard to lift that up. So she does the thing where three people can, you know, grasp, there's an iron ring that the, that three, three PCs can grasp and like heave-ho, kind of try to hoist it up. So she rolls 3d6, one open doors check for each PC. All fail, and at that point... Four giant flaw frogs leap onto the battlements and kind of do this little screechy croak and prepare to attack so uh, so that was the first combat um, What actually happened was well the the party won the initiative, so since they were since they were by the trap door, which is more like in the middle of the tower, they weren't within um melee distance but this party is pretty good on ranged weapons so um in place of movement she you know got her bow and uh knocked an arrow and swords and wizardry bows have a firing rate of two per per combat encounter so she got to shoot two frogs right off the bat she didn't she only killed one but that was pretty good And then it got to the spells when we were resolving the spells. And this was uh, basically my son's uh, um, one contribution as we managed to get him over here and choose which spell he had prepared. And he prepared sleep. So he cast sleep. And of course, you know, there's no save for sleep. So he rolled 2d6 and that put all the frogs to sleep. Now, I mean, that's (laughs) that's a bad move, burning your one spell per day in the first encounter. But, you know, it did mean that they got there without taking any any losses it just also means that they have no spells to work with for the rest of the encounter so uh so then they manage to pull after the frogs are asleep they do manage to pull the trapdoor open water rushes down so that drains all the water from the roof and that water flows flows down the stairs um now we go to a lot of uh we have a lot of ruined castles here in Scotland as you can probably imagine. And a lot of them are free or very cheap to go to, especially if they're proper ruins. So we've taken the kids to many, many castles. They've been up and down the old staircases. They've seen how these stone staircases, including the spiral ones, they're very worn in the middle. Hundreds of years of feet going up and down them. They're just these they're worn smooth and there's these dips in them. And, you know, here in the 21st century, looking up them, you think, especially as an adult, you're like, that is not safe. So I described like that using the, you know, real world castles as a, as a benchmark and said, you know, they they already would have been slippery and smooth, but now they're wet. So she, you know, she decided to move cautiously down like at at a uh, half speed. There's no railing or any safety features like that. But what really creeped her out was she realized that they were going under the, they were going under the level of the water. And she was worried about flooding. I said, "Well, yeah, if there are any windows, then wherever the windows reach into yeah that will be flooded and she's like we don't have a potion of water breathing it's like well it, you'll know before you go in you're not going to just accidentally stroll into a water like a flooded thing and 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 not realize it until it's too late that's not how this works you'll know if the, you'll know if it's too wet for you to go into but she was very very careful about all the doors including kind of like she was really asking about wetness she didn't want to open a door and unleash a torrent of water and it's good that she it was good that she did that because there are actually several areas where if you open the door a torrent of water will come and, and knock you down or possibly drown you in fact there's one thing that it if uh if a cult member, basically, there's a cult in this tower worshiping some evil river monster. There's one. Th- there's one thing that the that there's one door that a cult member, if they're losing the battle, will actually open on purpose in order to kill everybody in the room. But she was able to neutralize that. She was able to kill the cult member before he reached the door. But what really got her was. The adventure specifically says that you're going to hear chanting, you know, so I did the chanting and she found that very creepy. I think the tension of being underwater, of not feeling like she can just open any door because water might rush out and drown her. And, you know, I described there's a statue of the monster in one room well before you meet it. So at least you can see what it looks like and i described that and it's a bespoke monster it's something that josh beckelheimer just kind of came up with it's kind of like he calls it like a squid serpent so i described it as it's like a squid or like a like a like a serpent but um instead of the head of a snake it basically turns into a squid and it has six tentacles and a and a squid beak so the statue ha- was coiled up like a serpent and the head was ready to strike, but the head wasn't a snake's head. It was a squid's tentacles and little beak in the middle. And of course, because it was a statue, she could see in detail that the tentacles were actually made of skulls. So that was a pretty creepy image. But yeah, I, I didn't expect her to be this, she's not normally this squeamish about about adventure details. But she said later, she said that the chanting especially really creeped her out. Um, by the time she got to the final encounter, it basically ended in a TBK, which of course it doesn't matter for this case because it was just a play test. So I said, remember, this, we're just running this as like a, a dream sequence or something. It doesn't mean your characters have actually died, but yeah, they, you know, four level one, four level one characters were just no match for the final encounter. Although I should have six or seven. So that might even the odds. And also, um, the door that they came in when they discover the final room, they can run out of it if they need to just run away. But it was, it was, it was good to see that I can, I can definitely run this conceivably within the time. And I thought if I need to, if some, if one, if one bit takes place to like takes longer than, uh, than I anticipated, I might need to cut an encounter. So I asked her, I'm like, of all the encounters I ran, if I had to cut one for time, which would you cut? And I was actually thinking of the frogs and she said, no, don't cut the frogs. Cause that's a really unique encounter. I was like, you're right. That's the only time you fight giant frogs. Also that, that functions as the guardian of the dungeon. That's kind of why they're there. If you manage to get the door, if you manage to get the trap door open on your first try, the frogs don't attack. They attack if you fail. And then you can fight them or you can keep trying to open the door. They will not pursue you into the dungeon. They're just there to make a bit more tension of you trying to get that door open. Although, on round two, um, a larger frog will join the fight. He has more hit points and he's capable of swallowing a halfling whole. Not a—not any anything bigger than a halfling, no. But he, he will probably try to swallow the halfling and swim away with them. So that could end. That could that could spice that encounter up. But she said, "Don't cut the frogs," because that uh, that's kind of a unique encounter. So I'll probably keep the frogs. But there was also an encounter. The adventure says that in one room, they they should they should find a headless corpse, and because. Where I put the headless corpse, they had quite a lot of rooms that didn't have any particular danger. It had been a long time since they had been through the trap, and they'd have more, like, puzzles and things. And I thought, this felt like a place where there should be some more danger. So I go ahead and I have that headless corpse animate and attack. Because it's headless, it's blind, therefore it fights it at a negative four penalty, as per swords and wizardry white box rules. However, it's a one-hit die monster, so it would add plus one to its attack roll. So that would make it negative three. And it's a berserker, so it gets a plus two. Basically fights as a berserker. So it's really only fighting at negative one, even though it can't see. Um, so that'll, you know, it's just one, so it shouldn't be hard to beat. The point, the point is more that it's creepy, because I, you know, ideally they'll investigate it first, and then it will attack. Um, the way I ran this for my daughter is, is the noise from that encounter um, caused another group of cultists to come in basically one ordinary cult member and four, four kind of minions who I ran as bandits. So they fought them. And then in the, the, the floor, the bottom floor of the dungeon, where they find the actual well that leads to where they summon the river monster Rultzak. That's where they find a cult mystic who's actually capable of casting a couple of cleric spells and has quite a lot of hit points and a number of the other cult members, not the bandits, but the ordinary cult members. So there's four of them and a cult mystic. And the thing is, is that apart from just being up one level you know, in terms of difficulty, it's a very similar encounter. It's one leader and four mooks, basically. So we talked about it, and uh, I think I'll probably cut that encounter. I may even cut it, even if we're not running close to the time limit, just because it's too similar. It's like, yeah, you fight one leader and four minions, and then you fight one more powerful leader and four more powerful minions. You might as well Fight the headless corpse and then get to the main event. And I guess depending on how that encounter goes, they may or may not successfully summon Roltzak. If they do, Roltzak is like, I think 12 hit die equivalent. Actually, I have it written down right here. So. He's very powerful. It's very unlikely that they would survive an encounter hit die, tw- 10 hit dying. So he's got actual, hate, eight actual hit dice, but his hit die equivalent is uh, 10 because if he hits, he gets two tentacle attacks. And if he hits with both of them, then he grapples you and bites your head off. And he heals when he bites your head off. So, because the skulls that make up his tentacles are actually human skulls. And every time he eats a skull, one of his tentacles gets longer. And so he'll actually heal. So you don't want to fight Rulzak; You want to dispatch them before they are capable of summoning him. And there's a specific process that I've written that they have to, because it doesn't say... In the, the, the style of the one page adventures is it doesn't specify a lot of detail. It gives you these concepts, these kind of broad strokes in this framework, and then you fill in all the blanks and all the details yourself. So I, you know, based on the map that I selected, which is basically it's one of the Dyson logos maps. As I was looking for maps for this, I had this idea of how I wanted the tower to look. And I basically wanted it to look a lot like the tower in the wizard's tower, the James Bond swords and wizardry white box. And eventually I'm like, you know, why don't I just use that map? Cause it's a Dyson logos map. You can, I mean, well, I think you can use it for free if you want to publish it, but I'm not even publishing. It. I'm just using it at the table. So, I mean, you can rip off any map you want and just repurpose it at the table. But I'm like, if this is how I want the tower to look, I'm just going to use this map. So that's what I'm. That's what I'm using, and based on the shape of the room and what I want each thing to kind of represent, I, I uh, came up with a process that the cult will use to summon Rultzak. So it's possible for the party to interrupt that and not have to fight Rultzak. If they do, they better. If if Rultzak is summoned, they better get the hell out of there. So. So it was a pretty successful play test. And, um, it once again showed that my daughter has some pretty good skills and pretty good instincts as a gamer. Um, and, uh, you know, since then I've been, I've been kind of fleshing out some of the room descriptions cause I felt it got a little bit samey. So I've been rolling up some random dungeon dressing and things like that from, uh, using primarily uh, Matt Finch's Tome of Adventure design. And uh, hopefully I haven't overloaded everything with information that I won't remember now in the day. Another thing that I learned from the play test is um, to ease off on the stuck doors check because that works really well. In a dungeon where there's lots of possible doors to check. So if one or two of them you can't get through on this trip, that's fine. But with this tower structure, there's basically one path, you know. And if if you can't get through that door, then I guess, all right, let's go back to town. So um, I'm going to have to uh, either not do it at all or kind of do it where there's other options in case they fail, you know. And that's just good advice generally. Never never roll dice unless you're willing to accept the consequence of failure. So anyways, the other thing I'm doing in prep for this game on Wednesday is I am rolling up backup or spare characters in case of death. Um the I I posted that I was going to run this game on only one of the several Facebook groups I could have uh posted on which was the original edition Dungeons and Dragons Facebook group. Um I could have posted on the Swords and Wizardry ones as well but um I guess I'm so squeamish about this game that I just kind of I wanted to um keep it on the low key. But when I mentioned I was running Swords and Wizardry white box, the first comment I got was that somebody else who had run it said, "Yeah, make sure they bring hirelings or spare characters and stuff like that. It's pretty lethal." Um and yeah, this adventure is clearly pretty lethal as well. Just not to say it's unsurvivable. It's just, you know, survival is not a given. So anyways, I've got so far 6 Spare characters. I've just basically been rolling three d six over and over again in my spare time, and then saying that looks like uh, a cleric, and then I buy them weapon and weapons and armor, and then I don't buy them any gear. Um, Since we're going to be using the uh, the gear slots thing, that won't matter anyway. But my original intention was that you know. You would meet these people, like they would be trapped in a certain room or something like that. They've lost all their normal gear. All they have left is their weapons. Um, they'll buy more gear. If they become your new character, you can buy them more gear when they get back to town. So I've got a cleric, a hu- well obviously a human cleric because all clerics are human. Um, I'm going ahead, I'm basically I'm allowing them to have max hit points. Um, I didn't always do that. Um, For instance, the first time I ever ran White Box for my daughter, we rolled hit points, and you know, you got the usual numbers you'd expect. Very low numbers. But for the, the, the basically precursor to Arapanathic that I'm running for both my kids, their hit point scores were so low that they talked me into just, you know, allowing them to start with Max. And to be honest... Starting your first-level character with six hit points isn't a big deal. It's not like breaking the game or anything. So they're all starting. We're all going to start with max hit points. You know, give you a chance to take at least a couple of hits before you realize that you should run away. So, say yeah, Cleric. Wisdom, 14, so it doesn't get that bonus. um, And it will not have a spell. Um, An Elf. So the Elf is obviously can choose between fighter and magic user. And I guess I will, if, if this, if somebody chooses this character, I will let them decide whether they're playing the elf as a fighter or magic user strength 12. So not a particularly gifted fighter, but competent nonetheless, but 16 intelligence. So they got a plus one. So, I mean, I would suggest magic user. Um, and to that extent, I only gave them leather armor and a sword for their, uh, for their equipment. Uh, Human fighter with a 17 strength, so that's pretty good. Um, 13 intelligence, wisdom of 16. So this is the only pre-rolled character I've got that gets the full 10%. Um, Experience point bonus, the 5% for the high strength and 5% for the high wisdom. And because of their strength, I'm, I'm running the optional rule where they get a plus one to attack and damage because they're a fighter. So this is a pretty good fighter, AC 17, plate and shields, and they are just encumbered. So their movement is only nine halfling thief, but well, so 16 decks, which is why I decided to do this as a thief. I was only going to roll up the three original classes, but I got an eight strength, a six intelligence and an eight wisdom. So it wasn't looking very good. A four cons, so negative one to their hit points. But then the de- the decks came up 16, and I was like, okay, well, it looks like we've got a thief here, so. And because they're a halfling, I guess they would do better against large creatures. You know? So, that, I don't know. I have a feeling nobody will choose this one. But it's not a bad, it's, apart from the hit points, it's not a bad character. And then... I was rolling up what looked like a mediocre fighter. So strength 12, intelligence 10, wisdom seven, con three. So again, negative one to their hit points. Dex 10. I was just like, man, I might have to throw this character out. And then charisma 17. So I'm like, Hmm, charisma 17. eh? so I decided that I would go ahead and make this as the, the kind of the James spawn white box version of the paladin. So it's a human paladin. Apart from that, not a very—I mean—because of that three con, you're always going to take a, a a penalty to your hit points. So not a particularly great character. They've got plate, but not a not a shield. So their AC's only sixteen. I, I can't remember now why I didn't buy him a shield as well. He's got the money. Maybe it's a two-handed sword. That would make sense. In fact, I think I'm going to go ahead and do that. It's going to be a two-handed sword. So, that's 1d6 plus 1. That would make sense, like why else would I not buy him a shield? Two-handed. So, and of course, at level 1 he'll be able to restore a, low, a measly one hit point by laying on hands i guess once per day then i rolled up another fighter only a 15 strength but still enough to get that bonus in fact he started off as a 14 um and he had um an 11 wisdom and i nerfed the wisdom to 9 to give him an extra strength point to get him that but bo- that bonus So, in a a lot of ways, not as good a fighter um, as the other fighter I rolled. But, you know, still not bad either. In fact, to be honest, there's very little difference between a 17 and a 15 strength in this game. So, in in a lot of ways, I think he's not as smart. He's only an 8 intelligence, so he won't have extra languages and things. But... Has the same bonus to attack rolls and damage and the same AC and the same, the same amount of hit points. I bought this guy a short bow and some arrows just so that he would have a, a ranged attack option as well. Because of that, he's encumbered enough to only have a movement of six. So it might be the kind of thing of ditching the, ditching the bow and arrows, which will bring his encumbrance down to allow him to move at nine. So that's six, and um, there's seven total respondents through the forum, and then I've invited one extra person who's a more experienced player to come along. He might come along, he might not. But I was hoping he would be kind of like the anchor player, um, especially because he's played old-school D&D back back in the day, so he should have some good skills about how to approach challenges and obstacles in an old-school way, and maybe be able to steer them. So that could be as many as eight. So I would like to have at least one backup character per death because I doubt they'll lose two characters unless they're particularly reckless. So I'm going to roll up these last two right now. And that is a six for strength. So, ooh, that's negative one. That's bad. I'm using these three wooden dice that I got out of a Christmas cracker. They roll terribly. Although, just as I say that, there's a 16. So it looks like we have another wizard. And that's 7, 8, 9 wisdom. So yeah, definitely a wizard. Here comes the con. uh, I'm doing this on uh, index cards where I've just written... I've filled them out myself, like just written my own little index cards, and I'm doing them in white box order, so Strength, Intelligence, Wisdom, Con, Dex, Charisma. I'm also bringing some character sheets, like blank character sheets, to the game. Um, I'm bringing eight sheets of Bloat Games OSR Deluxe character sheet, which you can download for free from DriveThruRPG or any of the One Book shelf sites. Um, it gives the uh, the stats in Strength, Intelligence, Wisdom, Dexterity, Constitution, Charisma. So the order that was introduced in the Greyhawk Supplementum was the default order up until 2nd edition AD&D. I like it just as much. And of all the free OSR character sheets that you can buy that I'm aware of, this is my favorite one. It looks, the design, it looks like a sheet of lined paper where somebody's just written out the spaces and it's absolutely everything you need. It looks like, you know, at a glance, it'll be compatible with any, any OSR rule set or retro clone. Um, it does give the classic five saving throws, but if you were doing swords and wizardry with a single saving throw, just write that number. Um, To be honest, you know, the fighter gets a plus two to poison or death ray anyway, so you might as well write a plus two in that section or, you know, write the magic resistances next to the the magical saving throws and things like that. But it's just, this is just brilliant. So I've got eight sheets of this. I love this. It's my favorite of them all. I'm also bringing some copies of the Swords and Wizardry Light blank ones. Which are almost as good. Because they're Swords of Wizardry Light, there's some bits that we won't be using. Like the adventure boxes where you take how many adventures you've done. Because you level up based on how many adventures you've been on. And the pre-done equipment packs. I was thinking about using those equipment packs um, to speed up the character creation. But as I said, I decided to use the uh, Untold Adventure style Uh, equipment slots instead anyways three six nine it's a nine for cons so no but no penalty to cons so not too bad this is a low number but it is just seven seven for decks. so just high enough not to get a a penalty initially when i read like the were, i loved white box from the first time i read it but there were a couple of things that gave me pause Um, where I thought, ooh, I might house rule that different. And one was the way that the attribute bonuses except for charisma are different than in the three little brown booklets. And that it's 7 to 14 is plus 0, and it's only 6 or less gives you negative 1, and 15 or more gives you plus plus 1, and nothing gives you higher than a plus 1. I was thinking, oh, I'll probably house rule that back into the way it actually is in the original three little brown book booklets. And the other thing was the single saving throw. I was just like, what, you know, there's never been just a single saving throw. I mean, I, I can, I can understand more or less why the five saving throws are what they are like poison or death ray. Those are things just trying to kill you outright. So you're trying to resist something that's just trying to kill you outright. Magic wand is considered less powerful magic than an ordinary spell or than a staff. So it's like weak magic. Turn to stone or paralysis, and I think polymorph also comes into that usually. Those are things that are trying to change your physical being. Either trying to turn your organic flesh into stone or trying to turn you into another creature. Dragon Breath is usually something you want to jump out of the way of, and then Spells and Staves, that's powerful magic, more powerful than the magic wands. I I assume that's the logic behind those being the five saving throws. As to how the numbers that you need to roll to make those saves were generated, I have no idea where those came from. I'm certain that there is a logic to it, because Gary Gygax did not... Just make stuff up. I'm sure he thought long and hard about the percentile possibilities of succeeding on those saves at various levels and for various classes. But I look at that spread of numbers and I have no idea how his mind was working when he came up with them. So I'll be the first to admit that I've never got those the, those classic five saves. From a nostalgia point of view, I was disappointed that that Swords and Wizardry wasn't using them, although. They do give you the option to use them if you want to. Um, so yeah, the thing is that in play, the single saving throw it really works. It saves a lot of time and because each class gets a certain bonus and a certain type of save, like the poison and death for the fighter and stuff like that. You know, it, it's there is a little bit of variation. I mean, look, for instance already in the game that I run for my kids the thieves bonus to saves against traps has come into play where it because he gets that bonus he made his save against the poison needle so it actually works it it do, it sounded weird to me at first but it works and the same thing was with these the the bonuses um in in white box as opposed to how they are in the actual three little brown booklets as they were rolling up my, my kids' characters, there were more 8s than there were 13s. So it was, it was worth not rewarding the 13s in order to avoid penalizing the 8s. So again, that's it's another example of it seemed weird to me at first, but actually it does work better. And I'm just going to keep it the way it is in the, in the book. It's a well-designed system, and, you know, I'm not going to mess with it too much. And that's 8, 9. 9 for charisma, so not great, but, you know, when you have, if there's 6 or 7 PCs and they can only hire one hireling each, it's still 6 hirelings, so. So this will be a magic user. And I guess I will let him pick what spell he wants. And we've already got one elf, so I'm gonna go ahead and keep him human. Especially because with a six strength, this would not be this would not be a val a valuable fighter. So and it's only six hit points. So oh, let's find out how much gold. Although what do the magic user need to spend on weapons? Just a couple of daggers. God, that's good. Where was this roll when I was rolling up one of the other stats? 14, so 140, so a rich. And before I buy him some equipment, I'll roll up the stats on the last one. That is 9 for strength. Not a hopeless fighter, but not a particularly gifted one either. Eight intelligence, so probably not a wizard either. <coughs> if I get low rolls all the way down, aha! Ooh, another oh, this will be a great cleric. So that is 16. This is a better cleric than the first one, isn't it? Uh, Twelve for Con. That's decent. And nine for Dex. And it's eleven, twelve for charisma. So a much more charismatic character than we've had for the uh so I think I'm going to keep this one as a cleric. So if somebody wants to play a thief, they're going to have to play that halfling. Human. And then the hit points are an ordinary six. Five percent. And the gold. That's another really good gold roll. So that is 11, 12, 13, 14. Another 140. One of the things that I think the players will be pleasantly surprised at is how cheap a suit of plate armor is. Um, Both the fighters that I rolled up have AC-17 because they were easily able to afford plate mail and a shield. So, yeah, I will buy them their weapons and stuff off- off-screen, as it were, Um, but those are my last two spare characters, so um, it is funny, kind of fun for me to keep ruling up spare characters, it's just like a little thing that I do, just get a pool of of spare characters in case people die, um, to keep the game going um, quick, to keep like, you know, to avoid having to stop and roll from scratch, although I love this meme that was going around and it was attributed to bill webb but the uh the dm informed a player that they triggered a trap and had to make a save and they failed their save so the player's like i failed the save. what happens and the dm was like uh roll 3d6 and he's like eight and he's like okay again and he's like, ooh, 14. And the DM's like, ooh, okay, one more time. And then he's the player is just about to roll the final 3d6. And he's like, wait a minute. I'm rolling up a new character, am not I? And I think that would be fun to do, actually, at the table. It's just like, what happens? Okay, roll 3d6 and again and again. And, you know, that's your new character. Although one of the funniest things I've ever seen, it was at one of the one of the earlier episodes of the Swords of Jordava. That's uh, Matt Finch's um, live stream of of Swords and Wizardry. So their uh, their cleric died. They were in a room and there there had been a they they were fighting snakes that came out of this nasty burlap sack. So their cleric died, and so uh, Matt was having him roll up a new character while everybody else was kind of finishing out the combat. So once the combat was over, Matt informed everybody that they start to see some more wiggling coming from under the burlap sack. And to be honest, as a viewer, I thought the same thing that the players did. It's like, Oh no, there's still snakes in the bag. So, um, Skeeter green playing the elf, um, fired an arrow at the burlap sack and so, you know, he rolled and he hit and he rolled damage and then Matt's like, um he said to the uh to Jim who was playing the cleric, how much uh how many hit points does your new character have? And it's like four and it's like, "Okay, he's dead too." So the new the new character was meant to be under the sack. And it was like now that they killed the snakes in that sack, the character was going to like pop out from under the sack and be like, I guess thanks for saving me or something. But nobody knew that. So Skeeter, I think rightly, shot the the sack and killed the new character. So we had to roll up yet another character. And I think that's got to be the fastest time like in history or something. It's going to be like up there for a record for the fastest um, death of a a new character. Like the shortest time between having to roll up. New characters. So, if you're not watching Swords of Jorda, but you should, it's really entertaining. Um, its unique selling point as as a an actual play broadcast of D and I know not everybody likes those. Um, I do. Its unique selling point is that Matt's doing a lot of really great dungeon tiles, and he's putting a little camera in in the dungeon tiles, so you see. What the characters would be seeing basically it's the the camera's the same height that the minis would be, so he shows you what you would be seeing um and that that it, it is worth it alone for that, but actually I would even if they stopped that if they stopped doing that and Matt said, "I don't have time to keep making these dungeon tiles is too much work, I would still keep watching the stream because the adventure and the players. And, and, you know, it's just, it's so, it's just so entertaining. And it of all the ones, of all the streams that I watch or all the actual play things that I watch it's the one that feels the most authentic to me. It just feels like a bunch of people sitting around, even though they're doing it over Google Hangouts or something, it just feels like a bunch of people sitting around playing D and D. Whereas, you know, some of the ones like critical role does not feel like that it's, it doesn't look like my game, you know, because I don't sit around with a bunch of professional actors basically ad-libbing a really elaborate story. I can see how it's entertaining. I know why people like it. But it's a TV show. It's not, it's not a game of D&D. It's just an unscripted improv TV show. With D&D as the engine, the creative engine for kind of randomizing or building around that. But... Yeah, Swords of Jordoba. It feels like a real, like it is a real game of D&D, which is why it feels that way. But <clears throat> it, it's much more like how <clears throat> the kind of game that I want to be in. Um, and there's, there's great, weird, and wonderful stuff in there and a lot of weird bespoke stuff. He had an undead plant at one point. He's doing, he's actually publishing gazetteers about Jordoba and the campaign setting which you can get those from Drive-Thru RPG and stuff so if you want to actually add any of that craziness to your own game. So, yeah, anyways, that's Monday's episode. Um, prepping for running Swords and Wizardry for grown-ups and playtesting it with my daughter, who once again demonstrates that she is a, a really great gamer. Um, I need to actually start teaching her how to run a game. She might be getting ready for that. Um, Until then, if I get a chance, I will try to do an episode where I answer some of the calls and stuff this week. But until then, uh, play well and let the dice roll where they may.